Oh, Father, let us state our love to you now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. We'll open to Romans 8. Who said that? (laughs) Yes, again. Once again. Um, Let me read a few more verses this morning than I... Did I? You know, I actually put down the wrong verses as the text. You can tell I read a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentaries. They're actually not commentaries, they're sermons written out longhand and preserved in a series. But he stayed on verses 28 through 30, i got to say, a good dozen sermons. <laughs> so um, I had done that for the last couple of weeks, but I actually intended to go further. And as you can see, I begin with verse 31 in the, in the notes. So let's take it from verse 28 to verse 35. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of the Father who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Father, we ask in Jesus' name this morning that you give us special attention to these words and a deep discernment of the teaching of this, the beloved apostle, and we pray in Jesus' name. And so we can see the... uh, If you have your notes with you, verse 31 begins, What shall we say then to these things? And he goes on in that verse, If God is for us, who shall be against us? If I was numbering the verses, I would have stopped after he said, What shall we say then to these things? Because, Because Paul's not here reading this entire letter to us. We have to go back and and ask, what things? If he's saying these things, these things are very important. So the first thing that comes to my mind is when he says, what shall we say to these things? I'm thinking, he's talking about the things, the blessings, the assurances of the final perseverance of the saints. You do know that's a doctrine, right? The perseverance of the saints is part of the grace. God brings you in and he maintains you all the way to the end. And you can't fall away. And no one shall be able to snatch you out of his hand, the final perseverance of the saints. He's trying to draw home and build upon block by block for our assurance to understand that God did all these things. They can therefore not be undone. And so we have to go back and look at what the these things are. So my first inference was to go back to the beginning of chapter 8, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But he can't be going back only that far because that verse starts with a therefore, meaning that goes all the way back to something else. So I'm going to suggest to you this morning that Paul took a break here, maybe took a breath, right? Or whoever was 
the elder reading this letter to the church at Rome. And I think he's going back all the way to the beginning of chapter 1, where he's telling us what kind of society of men we truly are. I've said to you many times over the years, we are a Romans 1 world. And that means God sent them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That's actually a 2 Thessalonians verse, but it's the same as God gave them up to themselves, to the futility of their mind, of their thoughts. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We are a society of professing wise men who are so evidently fools if you have the slightest bit of discernment in God's word. So what shall we say then to these things? In other words, what he's asking here is, what obstacles still stand in the way of your complete confidence in the final perseverance of the saints? What obstacles stand in the way of assurance? He built his argument systematically as we've gone through it week after week. Chapter 1, verse 16, all the way back, he begins giving us the condition of man. So let's go there, and we'll do a quick review and summary of what very, it seems very obvious to me, the, the apostle is pointing to. So back in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, and it is the power of God to destruction for everyone who does not. That's what the rest of the chapter says, that part I added in at the end there. So he took us through this step-by-step process of our full redemption. He began with the fact of God's wrath. Friends, The wrath of God is upon the world. He said the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The suppression of truth, as much as it offends us, it offends God more. The truth is being hidden. Any aspect of the truth today, it's hard to get to. It's hard to believe some prophet or pundit when they tell you anything. And I would suggest you go at all these things with a discerning and suspicious mind. Wasn't that a, an Elvis song, Suspicious Minds? Um, he spoke of the response of an angry deity. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven on all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. God is offended by lying. It's a thing he very much hates. And so we have this angry God venting his righteous indignation against a thankless, sin-filled humanity. God hates thankfulness. In his commentaries years ago, I read uh, from Calvin. What's that? God hates thanklessness. I'm sorry. Did I write it wrong in the notes? God hates thanklessness. No, I wrote it correctly. I just said it wrong. God gave us wives. God hates... (laughs) God hates thanklessness. I read years ago in Calvin's commentaries, he said, man is filled with a monstrous ingratitude. And so we read, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Did you know all men know God? All men know God. He gives light to every man coming into the world, the Apostle John wrote, right in chapter 1 of his gospel. All men know God. There is some knowledge of, an, uh, of a superintending deity 
architect over their lives that gives them a conscience, and in that sense, men have that. But men can go so far astray from God, God can take that even that away. And that's what Romans 1 is about. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile, futile, friends, empty, meaningless in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thoughts were futile, and their hearts were foolish. So God put out the light, the light that is the light to every man coming into the world. God puts out the light because they suppress the truth, and he hates that. So they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Friends, there's nothing that fills a man with intellectual pride more than stupidity. People that are stupid and futile in their thoughts think they're so smart. And all you people are shaking your heads. (laughs) That's right. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Man is corruptible, God is incorruptible. We read of God's reaction to man's continual denial. Paul writes this, Therefore, because unrighteous men, unthankful men suppressed the truth, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 24 of chapter 1. Verse 26 says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. You want to have vile passions? You want to live in sin, adultery, homosexuality, fornication? You want to live in those sins? God will give you up to those, and that's all you'll have. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they don't, friends, most men don't want to think about God. It's unsettling. You ever be asked to go to the bedside of a dying friend or relative and you know they haven't made their peace with God and you start to talk about it and there's always someone there. I call them the gatekeepers. There's always some, oh, don't upset them now. How long do you want to wait? This isn't going to go on too long. Oh, don't, don't, don't get them upset. Friends, better to go to heaven upset than to hell nice and calm on your adjustable hospital bed. Uh, They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a debased mind. That's a reality. He said it in 2 Thessalonians similarly to that. The coming of the lawless one is according to to the coming of Satan, who is full of lies and lying wonders, he said. And so in wave after wave of divine withdrawal, we see the world of men descend deeper and deeper into this depravity. So the apostle states the natural, evil, blind, helpless condition of man. Another great doctrine speaks of the condition of man when we're born into the world, the natural state. Total depravity, not partial depravity, right? Total. And so he goes on in chapter 1. There's none righteous, no, not one. Sounds total. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Friends, Christianity is not a religion about niceness. It's not a cliche about Jesus loves me. It's about a wrathful God venting retribution upon evil men. And all of that wrath that he takes up, what Paul is going to show us, all of that wrath that should have been upon you and me, God vented upon his precious son. 
That's grace. That's Christianity. A wrathful God vented his anger upon his innocent, perfect son. He goes on to demonstrate that the law of God was given to restrain evil. Friends, the law wasn't evil. It wasn't as powerful as some thought, but it, it, is, it wasn't evil. All the law had the power to do was to condemn. There was no human capacity to obey it. You know, the law didn't come with motive power to obey it the way the gospel did. The gospel came with the Holy Spirit, motive power to obey it. You couldn't obey the law until you received the Holy Spirit. Now you can. That's why David could say the law is a delight to me. So the law offered insight into righteousness. It showed us what righteousness is. It gave us opportunity to achieve godliness. That's the thing about free will that I think we don't understand. Yes, we have free will to choose something. We're given the opportunity. We just don't have the power because of sin, because we're totally depraved. We don't have the ability to choose rightly. We do have the opportunity. And so he writes, now whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law was given to show us that we're guilty before God. That our mouths would be stopped. We couldn't say I'm righteous. We could look at the law and see the deficit in our lifestyle and say, I'm guilty too. And here I was thinking I was a good guy. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. The law couldn't justify you. Only God can justify you. That's what he said here in verse 33. It is God who justifies. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So Paul gave us one of his famous but now statements. All is lost. All the law could do was restrain continual evil, but of itself it had no power to save until now. But now, he writes, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the true prophets of God were aware of the impotence of the law to save. The true prophets of old, friends, were aware that the law was a direction only. It wasn't a destination. It was pointing to something. And they looked forward to a time and to a Savior that could pluck them out of their own depravity. And they waited on the Lord. And they prophesied his coming. And as the apostle had done elsewhere in his epistles, he points to faith. Always to faith. It's not a new subject in the New Testament time. Faith isn't new. It's an ancient subject. It did not come after the law as plan B. It came 500 years before the law. This is why history is important to us. It's good for us to know the chronology. Abraham lived circa 2000 BC and Moses received the law in 1500. There was 500 years without the law where Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham found peace with God by faith some 500 years Before Moses went to Sinai, faith was always there. It was always the path to salvation for everyone who believes. That's why in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, the apostle drives on the point, for what does the scripture say, he asked. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was righteousness that comes by belief in God. 
And so the Old Testament always contained the path to God through Christ. It wasn't hidden. It was neglected. Isn't it interesting? The law fed the pride of men and faith fed the humility in man. Boasting and pride have no part in faith. Faith is a gift. The law, though also a gift, as a righteous standard of obedience, is a fearful reminder of our spiritual impotence. You know, I've been reading of the faith or lack thereof of some of the founders, particularly with regards to Thomas Jefferson. I think people mix up sometimes why they think Jefferson was a Christian. First of all, he called himself a real Christian. But what he meant was, he does good works. <laughs> That's what he meant. He was, it's, it's fair to say that Thomas Jefferson was obsessed with the Bible. He could out-argue and out-quote the best of them. He was really a great scholar and a great intellect. But he said, the final judgment of my soul is my reason. And the greatest arbiter God gave us of good and evil is human reason. And you know what? He's right, except for one thing, one aspect of reason. It's fallen into sin. It's corrupted. It can never get all the way to glory. It can only tell you what you think you need to know. This is a man who owned many slaves who thought he was a a great do-gooder. A man who had six children from a slave girl. A man who inherited 139 slaves from his father-in-law. And said he'd free them and never did. You know, but this is where human pride can destroy a man. Now, I don't take away from the greatness of a founder, but I do have to parse whether or not a founder is a Christian. And some were and some weren't. I could say the same of other founders, Ben Franklin, but I think in his old age he became a believer. And I'm basing that on some of his observations and things that he said. But faith was always there. And reason was always there as a gift, but until faith comes, it's a corrupted gift. It cannot take you all the way to glory with God. It can't give you righteousness. You can't just add up rights and wrongs and say, I'll do these and I'll be righteous before God. The law served only to showcase our inability to achieve righteousness on our own, for no man keepeth the law. We would never be justified before God of ourselves. Justification was the gift of God to the faithful. And so he writes in chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the law and the statutes, the whole sacrificial system that the Jews religiously engaged in was given to point to the cross where the true Lamb of God would be sacrificed for our sins. And so every Passover, they would come to Herod's renovated temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And all the pilgrim families would come with their perfect lamb from their flock. And they would go there, and the priest would ritualistically sacrifice those lambs, put its blood on the four horns of the altar. You know all this at Passover, except for that one faithful Passover when the substance The real lamb showed up. The real lamb of God came. And so all those thousands of lambs over hundreds of years were but a symbol 
pointing unmistakably to the real Lamb of God. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And every priest and every scholar of the Scripture should have got on their knees and said, It's him. And they missed it. They still looked at the little lamb in their hands, which was only a symbol pointing to the real one. But they had to miss it because the son had to be slain as the lamb. He had to be the first male of his male child of his mother. He had to be perfect and inspected for five days when the Pharisees came out and asked him questions, and the next day the Sadducees, the next day the Herodians, the next day the scribes. That whole first, what we call Holy Week, where they inspected the lamb, just like the Jews chose the lamb on the 10th of Nisan and inspected him until the 14th. And he had to be declared perfect. And so the judges came out. Pilate and Herod both said, I find no fault in this man. This man was the perfect lamb. He was following the path that Moses said each family had to follow with their symbolic lamb. And finally he arrived. The fulfillment of the law arrived. And so the law and the statutes and the whole sacrificial system was given to point to the cross where the true lamb of God would be sacrificed. And the Passover where atonement would be sought by the blood of lambs, was but a symbol of the real atoning sacrifice. And Paul said it to the Colossians. These were but a shadow of the things to come. To the Corinthians, he said, but the substance is Christ. The Lamb of God would be slain on that very day. Christ our Passover. I'm sorry, the last verse was a Colossians verse. This is 1 Corinthians. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ is the Passover. So what was the purpose of the law? Well, Paul told the Galatians what the purpose was. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. At this point, the apostle asked another leading question. You may remember it. He was anticipating objections of a self-righteous humanity. And so he said, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Remember that? Let me ask you a little bit different question. If we sin, will grace abound? The answer is yes. <laughs> Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But then he asks this question. What shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. Why? Because you're changed now. How shall we, who are dead to sin, live in it any longer? Not shall we sin that grace may abound, but how can we who are dead to sin live in it any longer? Shall we sin? The intellectual answers yes. Let's sin that grace may abound. The converted, born-again heart says no, because we're dead to sin. We take no more pleasure in it, and it doesn't please our God. It offends him. Paul gives us this whole en enigmatic interlude into chapter 7. Remember we had the arguments? Was the man saved? Was he not saved? Did he get saved during the, the conversation? We had all those wonderful debates at that time. But whatever we believe to be the nature of the man in the passage, we'll all come down to the same impossible place in our search for personal righteousness before God. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because it is obvious I cannot deliver myself. I thank God through Jesus Christ. And chapter 8 begins. And so it opens to us with one of the most great 
proclamations in all of Scripture. It contains the inescapable conclusion for anyone who's been paying attention to the teaching of the former seven seven chapters. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so all that wrath that should have been pointed at you and me was vented on the one perfect holy son, the spotless, perfect, guiltless Lamb of God, I find no fault in this man, the judges said, right? And so he taught the whole of Hebrew history and doctrine in a single epistle. He put the plan of God on display. Man sinned, he lost the ability, he lost the will to please God through that sin. Apart from God's merciful intervention, all was lost. Friends, lost means lost. You can't find your way back, you have to be found. The shepherd has to go out for the one sheep and find it, right? For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Friends, it was the original plan. It's not a new plan. It was all conceived in the heart of God in eternity past before the very foundation of the world. And so the Father conceived the plan. He elected the saints individually for salvation. God foreknew you. Remember we labored over this last week? It's an intimate spiritual connection with with God in your preconceived state. The Son redeemed the saints by being faithful to the Father's plan. So the Father elects, the Son redeems. It's interesting because on Thursday night in Ephesians chapter 1, we're covering this same subject. So the Father elects the saints, the Son redeems the saints, and the Holy Spirit seals and guarantees that the saints will make it all the way. So the Holy Spirit was given to the saints so we could cognitively, intellectually, mindfully take part in the plan. Our our minds were redeemed from futility that he spoke of in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit came and he gave us light. He put that light back in our minds so we could comprehend the word of God. All that was left for the saints to do was to rejoice. In the love and mercy of an omnipotent God who did all things for their good. And so he writes this, and we know. And by this time, friends, if you didn't know, you weren't paying attention. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Whatever may befall this earth, whatever may befall this country, Whatever troubles may come in your life, all those things cannot touch you. And this is the doctrine he's hammering home for us. What shall we say then to these things? Everything works together for good for those who love God. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. But he didn't predestine them to keep sinning. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that's why I've been hammering lately. If you're not conformed to the image of the Son, you might want to reevaluate if you've been called. Because Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Not just the firstborn, but firstborn among many brethren. Friends, if he can't bring us with him, the whole thing falls apart. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. In God's mind, you're already glorified with Christ, if you're the called. And so here we are, back at today's verse. What shall we say then to these things? And now we know what things. If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, what possible objection to this plan can you still have? What path of reasoning could possibly linger among you to oppose the truth of the apostle's statement of the assurance of our salvation? There should be nothing left to query. We ought to be standing and rejoicing before God in the name of Jesus Christ. But let's take it a piece at a time. What shall we say then? Paul's asking for our conclusion. Like we're investigators. He wants our forensic conclusion. He's given us all the historical and doctrinal evidence for final perseverance, and now he wants us to judge it. What shall we say then? The psalmist knew what to say. The psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I am redeemed, and nothing can change it. What will you say to this? Are there yet objections to this great truth? Our answer should not be theoretical. It's physical. It's actual. Our bodies, our minds, all redeemed. But I think I can help with a simple rule. A simple rule of approaching Scripture and approaching these doctrines. Do not ask the question, can I lose my salvation? Ask the question, did I ever have it in the first place? And you'll be in the right place. False security has got to be the worst curse, worse than no security. I mean, a false security is no security, but you think you're secure. That's got to be bad. That's got to be a, a big surprise on Judgment Day. I thought I did it right. I thought my human reason was, was my judge, and I judged myself well. Did I ever receive it in the first place? Friends, there's an essential rule of interpreting God's word. Never let your experience determine for you the meaning of the word. Always let the word determine for you the meaning of your experience. And I'm going to give some examples. Now, I suspect that there'll be no one willing here to object to Paul's convicting evidence that the saints who were chosen for salvation by God can still fall away from that high place, that safe cleft in the rock. I don't think any of us will object to the teaching of it. But let's apply it to ourselves, because sadly, there are some who have many things to say against final perseverance. There are some who will allege objections to assurance. You know, I had a minister, a Protestant minister, who said, I I don't know if I'm saved. I guess I'll find out when I get there. It's kind of too late by my read. I think you want to know going in, if you're going to get in. But... There are some who say such things. There are those who will allege objections to final assurance. There are some who say that our salvation can be lost. It's a gift of God, but it's a perishable gift. It's a thing gained one moment and lost the next. And Paul's not ignorant of their devices, and neither am I, and neither should you be. You know, we've been made fun of as Calvinistic Christians because we have a tulip. Does everybody know about tulip? The acrostic of the five points of... Um, the doctrines of grace, right? But the Arminian view, which is the opposite view, they also have a flower. It's the daisy, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Um, 
Before I go into the classical objections to the final perseverance of the saints, let me offer you a few principles in approaching Scripture, and I think this will help. These are rules. I made these up, but I think you'll see that they're, they're good rules. Number one, never be content to portray one passage of Scripture as a contradiction to another. Have you ever had a, a, a discussion over doctrinal issues with something, and, and you say something like this, therefore now no condemnation, and someone goes and and says something against that from another scripture, say, what are you saying? That one of them is contradictory to the other, that God changed his mind on page four than he did on page one? Have you ever had that happen? Never assume that the scripture's contradiction, contradictory of itself. Now, there are certain places in scripture that I have to admit seem to be contradictory. Now, those are called paradoxes. And a paradox is not a contradiction. It's just a difficult situation that you have to discern upon, upon more examination. You will find that the two things actually congeal quite well together. I know there are places in Scripture that seem to do this, but I believe and, I, and I've taught you that we hold to a strict doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, all scripture, he says, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know that passage, right? It's not contradictory or even finally elusive. If one verse seems to contradict another, here's here's your rule, all right? It's because you've interpreted either one or the other of the verses incorrectly. And usually that's a context issue, which I think I'll demonstrate as I go through this. A second point, don't try to arrive at truth by an unclear and isolated verse or an unclear or isolated passage of Scripture. There should be other what we call proof texts to show that the meaning of the verses. In other words, the Bible is its own interpreter. When discussing a topic, and I say this to people all the time, if you're going to discuss something like predestination, very controversial, people don't like it because they think it robs them of their free will and other things. Uh, When you're discussing this, you always turn to a passage of scripture that's intending to teach that subject. Not just something that seems to say something contradictory in passing, right? Do not found a conclusion upon a text that says something in passing. Notice how Paul in this chapter doesn't stop at a bare recital of facts. He goes on and on to build one truth upon another upon another. Paul also said to Timothy, you'll remember this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort, convince. That's what Paul does. He's convincing. He's exhorting. He's building one truth upon another. He's not just taking one scanty phrase from somewhere and saying that's the whole story. Uh, A third rule, let the clear passage interpret the unclear passage and not vice versa. All right? Do you know that's even a rule in science? When we're doing scientific investigations into the truth of a matter, we always proceed from the known to the unknown, right? We don't start with something we don't know and go and try to uncover something. We go from the known things and build upon those. Almost all error and heresy is derived from establishing a doctrine 
from an isolated or ambiguous text. I don't say every text is clear, certainly not right away, but other texts will clarify the ambiguous text. A fourth rule, don't let your personal philosophy intrude into your argument for truth. We do that all the time. Oh, how could a loving God do that? It just said he did it. And you're going to say, how could a loving God do it? And, and we hear this when we're talking about an eternal hell. You know, there are those, I've heard John Piper say, he believes that most preachers are closet annihilationists. Do you know what that means? An annihilationist is a person that believes the soul is extinguished upon death. And, and there is no hell and there's no need for it. And, you know, of course, God doesn't have this eternal hell. There's only one problem with that. Jesus spoke many times, almost incessantly, on the nature of hell, where the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. You know, he goes on and on teaching about hell. And so you ask, how could a loving God condemn anyone to eternal torment? That's just your own philosophy. That's your own preconceived notion about what sin is and about what love is. Your personal understanding of things like sin and love will be of no help to you in understanding such things. You know, Ken used to say, my old pastor, he used to say, you know, people are all perplexed about why God hated Esau. You know, in the book of Romans, in the next chapter, it'll say, for Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And oh, no, God hates somebody. And people are all perplexed. Why did God hate Esau? And Ken used to say, if they were following the book of Romans, the question would be, why did God love Jacob? Why did he love anybody? Remember, friends, the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. You don't have to go back too far to remember that. Your, your carnal-minded philosophy cannot inform you about the word of God. And you don't have to defend God. The word does that quite well. When we ask such things as how could God conceive an eternal place of torment, it's always out of our own ignorance of the extent to which sin offends God. Friends, when you say how could God punish sin so cruelly, that's because we don't recognize how much sin offends God. We fell in love with our little pet excuses as to why I have to sin this time. And we think God has to accept that. He doesn't. He's totally offended by sin. He punishes it eternally because it's eternally offensive to him. And it's our undeveloped view of just how much God hates sin that allows us to cherish our own pet excuses for not participating in godly requirements, spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship. A fifth rule would be know who the intended readership of the text is. All right? Friends, remember this. Every verse of Scripture is written to you. Well, it's actually not. It's written for you, but it's, but it's written to someone, and Paul says to whom? It's written to the, to the Romans, to the saints who are in Rome. Corinthians, written to the saints who are in Corinth. And Philippi says, I'm, I'm writing to the saints who are in Philippi with their elders and deacons. Because he expects it to be read in the church, and there's a structure to the church. Who's it being read to? And so if you get the intended readership right, that'll help you interpret the verse in question. For instance, Peter's very famous statement, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friends, if the Lord is willing that all should come to repentance, and everyone doesn't come to repentance, 
then the Lord is not sovereign. Now, we know that the Lord's sovereign, so we know that verse can't be taken at face value. So what am I saying? Who's the verse written to? It's not a universalist verse. It's not saying everyone gets saved. Universalists jump on this verse. I had a person even the other night who said, my whole approach to evangelism is God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. People argue against election for that, for that reason. But these people forget to whom the epistle is directed. Peter made it very clear in the beginning of his letter. He said, I'm writing to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. If you don't have faith, then you're not the, the us that he's talking about. You're not the any that he's talking about. God is not willing that any of these of like precious faith with us should perish. Therefore, we won't. So what shall we say then to these things, Paul asks? He's begging the question as to whether or not the saints can fall away from final perseverance. And I've heard some say that when Christ gave the hard sayings, you remember this? Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now you've got to admit that's a hard saying. Imagine hearing that for the first time as a Jew. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And what did it say later? It said, from that time, many of his disciples went away and walked with him no more. So disciples can lose their salvation, right? Is that what it says? See, we know that's not true. We know a disciple cannot lose his salvation from so many other things that Jesus said. So the first thing we have to remember is that among the people of God, there will always be believing disciples and unbelieving disciples. Some people just appear to be following Christ. Some are only there until something offends them, like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I suggest that there are as yet some hard sayings that will draw some of us from the Savior's side. Ask yourself, what is it that Christ can require of me that I will finally reject and walk away from? It's a scary thought, but it happens. There's believing disciples and unbelieving disciples. There's genuine Christians and false Christians. Paul wrote a lot about false Christians in the New Testament. False prophets. Beware of false prophets, right? If we read further in the story, Jesus turned to the twelve. After the disciples walked away, he turned to the twelve. And what do you think he said? Don't you also want to go away? It was still a hard saying to them. They didn't understand it. You know, understanding's overrated. God wants you to have it eventually. But understanding doesn't get you saved. Faith gets you saved. And Peter demonstrated it here. Do you not also want to go away? He might as well have said, it's a hard saying, isn't it? You don't know what it means. And what did Peter say? Where will we go? There's nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life, and so we've come to believe and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So whatever you say, we can't walk away. That's faith. You have to get to that point. You can't just be offended one day and walk away. Where else shall we go? So you consider the context first and look for the plain text to explain the ambiguous. And so we read, Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Notice all the thems and the theys. I give, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Paul's message is the same to those who heard the word and are evaluating it. What shall we say then to these things? The plain teaching of Christ confirms the teaching of Paul. Jesus speaks clearly of the Father's role in the process of election. He chooses some. Only some can hear it. And if you can't hear it, you're not elected. Not that you'd care, because you wouldn't know. But Jesus did not say that you do not believe because you do not understand. He said you couldn't even hear it. Understanding's overrated where faith and foreknowledge is involved. He said, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. That's what Paul's asking. It's a done deal before you even came there. It's a done deal before you were called, remember? They're up in the boardroom making a decision about the employee. It's all made. And then they give you the call. The Jews ask, will you speak plainly? And his answer was this, the Father gives me some but not others. That's plain enough. The fact is, they just didn't like the plain answer. Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is academic. No one's greater than God. No force in heaven or earth can change his decree or alter his decisions. So I suggest to you that those who do not believe just don't like the answers that he gives. And Paul deals with this in chapter 9 all throughout. But like chapter 8, he deals directly with God's sovereign choosing of who belongs to him and who does not. Some like the picture of the loving, saving, non-judgmental Jesus. I love that picture. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17 But they hate the next verse. The angry and indignant Jesus has said, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus warns us not to assume we know what we don't really know about him. So many don't like the Jesus that said, do not think I came to bring peace into the, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Some love the Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But they hate the Jesus that says, Friend, how did you come in here without a garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus has two sides, at least to him. Do not be one of those who stumble over the answer to Paul's question. If God be for us, who can be against us? The apostles full of questions. He asked, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Friends, he gave us eternal life. Do you think he's going to be stingy about the smaller things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, because God is stronger than all these things. Paul does not ask these questions for nothing. He's building in the saints the impregnable power of assurance. 
you will get there because it was always his intention for you to be there. He's preparing us for the trials and persecutions and temptations that are going to come upon us just as they were coming upon the Roman believers of the first century. It's only this assurance, friends, that will give us the power and the courage to stand in the evil day, and this is the evil day. Father, we ask you to give us revelation of these truths, O Lord. If you are for us, O Lord, let us know that nothing in heaven and earth that stands against us shall prosper, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.